0: Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Listeners, I'll just say it. Today's guest has some pretty amazing credentials. France Q. Wong, Graduated in the top 1% of his class from West Point Academy. Earned a master's degree in criminal justice from Washburn University. Graduated magna cum from Georgetown Law. Passed the bar exam. And oh, by the way at some point in all of this, also joined Ranger School, I think like two days after graduating from West Point, which means that this person is either Superman or a glutton for punishment. And we're going to find out which of those two it is. So for folks that are not aware, Ranger School is the program where selected members of the armed forces train in special missions. As part of that training, they get about three, three and a half hours of sleep a night. They eat maybe two meals a day if they're lucky. They spent a lot of those days training, carrying 65 to 90 pounds on their back. So as you can imagine, it's pretty grueling to do, especially immediately after leaving a pretty rigorous physical and academic environment like West Point. So clearly, this guy knows how to have a good time. And part of me was thinking this morning as I was preparing for our conversation, I was up at 4.45 to get my awesome day started, but I imagine that France was up at 3.45 this morning, probably went for like a five mile run, came home, responded to some email, probably made breakfast for his family, and, you know, is now settling in for some other things to do, like this recorded conversation. Now, France is a serial entrepreneur trading in everything from jets to law firms to co-working space to technology for nonprofits. In fact, he founded a company called Boodle AI to help nonprofit supporters data mine their own social media data and fundraise better. So at some point in our conversation, I'm sure we're going to talk with France about that. But what I really wanted to delve into is his experience in creating organizational culture. He is, after all, a graduate of one of the top leadership programs in the world, and that's West Point. And he also has a couple decades of leading teams in combat, in government, and in the private sector. He has a great perspective on what it means to shape, support, and give life to the ethos of a human structure. So let's jump in. Hey, France, welcome to the podcast.
1: Good morning, Dolph. It's great to be here. And uh, to answer your question, I am definitely a glutton for punishment.
0: I have to say that that was absolutely my impression. Um, so you kind of have to share with me what what made you uh, decide to make that decision? Like, okay, I'm graduating from West Point, and now I'm going <laughs> to apply to Ranger School and just jump right in, not take a couple months off.
1: Yeah, so Ranger School is a leadership school, first and foremost. And the way they teach leadership is by putting people in pretty extreme situations, in in the sense of you're having to lead your peers, which is the hardest type of leadership. You're doing it in an environment where people are sleep-deprived, food-deprived, and very stressed. And the idea is if you can lead peers in that situation, you can lead anybody in any situation. As to why I chose to go to Ranger School, you know, I'm originally from... Vietnam. So I'm an immigrant. I'm an immigrant. I came over here as a refugee. And growing up, once I learned about my family's history and the role the military played in evacuating me and my family, I knew that I wanted to give back. And the way I chose to give back was by serving in the military. And so I applied to, received an appointment to West Point. And as I went through West Point, just continually thought about those Vietnam era soldiers right and the training they went through and the fact that i was following in their footsteps and and that gave me great comfort and inspiration and i knew from my reading about the soldiers during that time that uh, every officer that went to vietnam attended ranger school and that was a required part of their training Um, the idea was this type of extreme training would help them better lead their soldiers and better prepare them for combat and so when uh, a month before i was supposed to graduate from west Point. My officer representative for my branch came to me and says hey France I have a present for you and I was like, oh ma'am, you don't have to get me a present She goes no 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 the present is a slot to the US Army Ranger School Uh, I was like ma'am That's a surprise and it was a surprise because normally you spend months training up for Ranger School Uh, It's something you do after you've had some time in the army Uh, normally your first kind of basic training officer basic course and the slot I was going to go to was was three weeks away. And and the reason was the ranger school was closing down to my branch, which was military police corps. And this was going to be the last chance that I would ever have if I wanted to go to go to ranger school. And the other condition was I would have to give up all 60 days of my vacation after graduating from West Point and I'd have to make it through the first time I couldn't. uh, Normally, when you go to ranger school, there's three phases. And if you fail a phase, you can redo it. Well, in my case, I'd have to give up 60 days of vacation, and I'd have to make it straight through. Despite all that, and having only three weeks prepare, I knew I absolutely wanted to do it because I felt like I was following in the footsteps of those very same soldiers and officers that had served in my home country and, and helped rescue me.
0: Wow. I, first of all, I just have to say, I'm really impressed that not only was it, okay, I've got to go to ranger school, but here's the pressure. And here's why this is going to be a bigger barrier than it is for most people.
1: Yeah I think uh I think I'm someone you know, and a lot of folks um who go to the military West Point ranger school that way we're we're driven by a desire to excel and in some ways like the harder something is the more we want to do it uh, as a as a way of showing that we can and and ranger school uh and West Point but particularly ranger school has a way of finding whatever your weakness is and making you confront that so whether that's You know, you have physical limitations, um, whether, you know, you don't deal well with sleep deprivation, whether you have some kind of weakness in your leadership style or you have some kind of technical or tactical weakness, whatever it is, rather than simply avoiding it, which is easy in everyday life. Right. The military in ranger school makes you confront it and deal with it in a stressful environment.
0: So you mentioned that ranger school is a leadership training program, what, what leadership things did you learn at Ranger school that you maybe did not learn at West point or earlier in your life?
1: Oh, that's a great question, Dolph. Um, uh, so at West point, um, you know, West point is an Academy. It's four years long. They teach you, uh, it's a comprehensive program. There's an academic component. The academics are as, you know, as hard as an Ivy league school, There's certainly a leadership training component from day one to the day you graduate. You're learning about leadership. It's the world's premier leadership institution. And then there's an an athletic and physical component. right? Everybody, when I went through, you know, every male cadet had to box. We all had to take gymnastics. We all had to pass swimming. Much to my chagrin, I actually did not know how to swim until I showed up to West Point. So I was a little bit shocked and surprised when I found out I had to learn to swim to graduate. Um, Despite all that, I didn't have to do it in this sort of intense pressure cooker environment, um, and kind of do it uh, for real, right? In the sense that it, while it wasn't combat, Ranger School is the closest thing to combat the U.S. Army puts together. And in fact, the joke often is when you're in combat, uh, people say, "Well, at least I'm not in Ranger School." And, and having having served in Afghanistan and deployed as a peacekeeper to Bosnia. I'll tell you, I, I did some you know, very hard things in combat, but Ranger School prepared me for those things because it, it just puts all those things on top of one another, right? It's, it's the having to have road march 15 miles while you didn't sleep the night before and then all of a sudden being thrust into a leadership position. Like literally a Ranger instructor turns to you and says, OK, Ranger Hong, now you're in charge and you have to figure out where you're at, what the mission is, how your soldiers are doing. What's the next step to take um, who your other leaders are, organize everyone, make a plan, rehearse, and then execute that all on the fly. And while I did parts and components of that while at West Point, having to do it all together taught me a lot about just myself. Right. And I'll I'll give you a short uh, story because that's, that's all very kind of pie in the sky. So in the very last phase of Ranger school, Uh, I had passed my final patrol. So I was I was gonna graduate and I was on the the final field exercise and Towards the end of the field exercise in order to pass ranger school, you have to pass a patrol in every phase and um, I had passed my patrol. I knew I was gonna graduate but there was a a ranger who had not passed the patrol and they were trying to get him to graduate and so they they gave him another patrol and we're in the the swamps of Florida uh, and all of a sudden the, the ranger instructors throw artillery simulators um, and they sound like artillery coming in. And what you're supposed to do is do a battle drill where the person in charge yells a direction and a distance and everybody runs that far in, in that direction. And the platoon leader yells 150 meters, 12 o'clock, which means go straight ahead 150 meters, right about um, 500 feet and everybody just groans. And the reason they groan is he hadn't been thinking 150 meters straight At 12 o'clock put us straight up a hill and so everybody's carrying 50 to 60 to 100 pounds of gear And now we're all having to run up this hill and the RIs get annoyed at him because he's not moving fast enough And so they announce that he's dead, right? So they they he so he's hypothetically dead and he he kind of falls to the ground and everybody's running past him And I, I I look and I was like, why is everybody running past him? Well, they're running past him because nobody wants to carry, you know this ranger student who made a bad decision, his 160 pounds up this hillside. And and in in that moment, I made a split decision. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to leave this guy here. That's not right. And so I throw my pack to somebody else and I rig up a sling and I put him on my back and I haul him this 500 feet up the side of a hill um, because I just didn't think it was right. And uh, I didn't have to do that. Um, but I'm glad I did because it taught me something about myself, right? Like, what am I going to do when I'm tired and hungry and stressed? Do I do the right thing? Do I not do the right thing? Um, and it's, it's incredibly valued to be, be put in positions where you have the opportunity to exercise um, choice and to make those choices.
0: So <clears throat> in nonprofits around the country, how do we help team members have experiences where they have to make decisions like that? where the risk is not as high, much like in ranger school, you're not yet in combat. Um, but also keeping in mind that in the nonprofit sector, it would be really tough to say to everybody, okay, strap 80 pounds on your back and run up this hill.
1: Yes. So every organization has a culture, you know, whether you choose to create one or not. Uh, the culture is both a mix of, of nature and nurture. And what do I mean by that? So culture starts with who you hire, right? People's individual values, Um, Who they are what they learn that's the nature part of it and the rest of it is nurture and nurture comes from two places It comes from the way people treat one another and it comes from the organization's uh, leadership and nurturing culture requires both courage and leadership So if you're not willing to take a stand on anything, then you're not You're not able to affect your organization's culture and the culture is going to be dominated by those individuals who are executing Or or exhibiting leadership and courage and that may be that may be the clerk in the mailroom who everybody talks to and he makes comments about how How your nonprofit is doing and literally that person is the primary influence in your culture Why because they're exercising leadership and courage and they're they're standing for something and so culture at the end of the day is what leadership stands for and part of Part of that is giving people um, the, the freedom to make choices and then explaining how that culture um, or how those decisions align with the culture. And so do, what do I mean by that, right? So one of the things I do when I onboard new people in my organization is I tell them, I want you to make mistakes. And that, that always strikes people as, like, I, I can always see way, like, new employees look at me kind of funny. Like, that's not what I expect my boss to say to me on the first day. I go, but I, I want you to make mistakes because that means you're taking risks. That means you're, exor- you're taking responsibility. You're exercising um, initiative. And if you do those things, the result is sometimes you're going to get it wrong and you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. And I want you to learn from them. I just don't want you to repeat those mistakes, right? And then what I do is I, as quickly as possible, I try to figure out where I can put that employee in a position where they can take responsibility for something they don't feel comfortable about. I hope they make a mistake and then I back them on it because what you what you do matters more than what you say and what you say matters more than what you write. In other words, you might have a great culture statement like a value statement or a mission statement organization, but if the reality of what you say the organization stands for every day-to-day is different than that, people are going to believe what you say instead of what you write. And most importantly, how do you treat people, right? If I say, I want people to take risks, but the first time somebody makes a mistake, you know, I bite their head off in front of everybody else in the organization, guess how many risk takers you're going to have the next day, right? Zero.
0: I've got to share a quick, great story with you. When I was a development director almost 20 years ago, I made a decision and I fully admit this. I made a decision that was a bad decision and it cost us about $15,000. And I had to go into my boss's office and essentially own it and say, I made this decision three months ago. It was a bad decision and it cost us $15,000. And she was awesome because she essentially was like, well, I need you to explain to me what you learn from it, and what you're going to do differently next time. And it's a $15,000 training expense for you. And um, it was like, I mean, literally, I was like, okay, I'm going to get ridden up, you know, it, it, and this is going to be an issue. And she really handled it really well. And, and admittedly, I did learn from it. I've not made that same mistake since. Um, and, and, I, and I think that's what's so critical. It's like, it's okay to make mistakes. It's just not okay to make the same mistake over and over again.
1: Yeah. And you probably told uh, your fellow employees, right? Other people in the organization, the way your boss treated Mm -hmm. you and how tolerant she was of your mistake and how supportive she was of your education and learning. And that, right, that peer to peer talking about the organization, that's how culture is created, right? right? It's not a PowerPoint slide shown once a quarter at the team meeting, right? That that's Mm -hmm. just words on a piece of paper. It's it's. Culture is built every day with every action and every statement and also every every inaction and every silence. So if an employee does something that goes counter to the culture you want to create as leading the organization and you don't say or do something about it, guess what? That action or that statement now has become accepted. And so it's, it's really important to also speak up right when things happen that are not a part of your culture. That, or you don't want to be a part of your culture. Right.
0: And, and I'll share with you the other way that I think um, she was really strategic and kind of saying, okay, this was a learning experience for you. Um, so the first is, you know, at the time I was bringing in a few million dollars a year. So $15,000 out of a few million, it really is kind of, okay, you know, this is a, this is a training expense. But... The second is I was also managing the development team and there were you know five or six employees on the team and I was a relatively young manager. So the other thing she was doing is she was kind of mentoring for me, like, okay, when you have someone who comes in and makes a mistake and they own it, here's what you need to say to them.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So the other, I want to rewind though, because you kind of, no offense, France. You know, I got the utmost respect for you, dude. I got the utmost respect for you. Um, but um, you you kind of glossed over that, okay, it's really important that you, in recruitment and that you hire right. And I could not agree with you more. My best and worst decisions as a leader have been the people that I've brought onto my team. So yeah. so let's let's really unpack that for a minute and talk about how you hire right, not just in terms of skills, but in terms of those soft skills and the culture fit that you're trying to build
1: yeah, it's that's I think uh, there are three things, right? A leader of an organization absolutely has to do. You know one of them is provide strategic vision and direction. Second is make sure there's enough money in the bank. But the third is hire the right people. And I think of of those three tasks, they're all equally important, but I put a strong emphasis on that third one, hiring the right people. Um, there's a there's kind of this belief that, you know if we hire, uh, we are a decent employee then we can train and motivate them and get them to To perform well just by the way we kind of shape right their activities And I think that's actually not the right approach like you people perform and excel when they are in the right job in the right organization with the right culture working for the right people doing the things that they're passionate about and so your role as a leader in hiring is to find somebody where there's a fit across the board. And then your continuing role as a leader is if that person isn't, it turns out those things are not a fit, figure out how to get them into a place where they're the right fit, right? It's the it's the idea of you know, do we use compensation and bonuses or incentives to change behavior, right? Or do we use it as a way to keep the right people in the right seat? So, you know, I believe that you need to bring the right people on the right bus and get them on the right seat right away. And then everything else follows from that. So, you know, if you hire somebody and it turns out they're in the wrong job, they're, they're working for the wrong person, maybe they're in the wrong organization, then you need to you need to fix that as soon as possible. But those conversations, right, begin at the front first part. In other words, part of hiring needs to be checking, you know, hey, this is what our culture is. Like, start those conversations literally the moment somebody walks in the door and asks you know the potential employee how do you feel about that kind of culture right and, and ask probing questions and find out what what their experience is because they are part of the nature. you know their their values are going to be part of your culture when you hire on and so I think hiring for cultural fit is just as important as hiring for do they have the right experience do they have the right technical skills you know are they is the compensation structure right. Um, I, in fact, I, I would I would start with culture, and if it's not a if they're not a cultural fit, then none of the other things matter.
0: And I'll share with you. I think so often, and I don't think this is intentional, but I think so often hiring managers lie because they want to put a good face on the organization. And so, for example, maybe the culture really is a pressure cooker, um, but they'll say to potential candidates, "Oh, we believe in you know life work balance, and most people go home between five and six When in reality, most people go home between six and eight. And, you know and so now someone signs on thinking they're gonna get one thing and they get another and and so I think a lot of it you're hundred percent right is like the hiring manager being really upfront with candidates and saying you know this is what our culture is and then trying to to assess whether the candidate just wants a job or if the candidate wants to be a part of this team
1: right so I'll share a, I'll share a story of you one of the companies I was on the founding team of mag aerospace uh, famously during its uh, during its day, early days and continues to be built around a culture of performance. So the the values of Mag are uh, serve, win, perform with a heavy emphasis on performance. And uh, part of the pitch to potential recruits was, look, you've probably been in a, many organizations where out of ten people, five are dead weight, two or three are carrying their weight, and you are the rock star. right? you are the person, the one or you know the top ten, twenty percent that makes up for everybody else. And could you imagine being part of an organization where everybody is part of that 10 or 20% is drawn from those 10 or 20% and you're gonna have to work harder than you ever worked in your life just to keep up with your peers. And when you tell people that one or two things happen, either people say, oh no, that sounds too pressure filled, that sounds stressful, I don't wanna be a part of that or they say, sign me up, that sounds awesome, I can't wait for that. And that's great. People self-select, right? Are given an option opportunity to self-select in the kind of organization they want, and by by selecting themselves into that organizational culture and knowing that's what they're going to join, they are choosing to become part of that, and in fact, they're choosing to enhance that. And I think part of Mag's success, and people often ask, like, why is Mag, you know, why was Mag so successful uh, in the period of eight years? It managed to, you know, go from a startup. over 300 million in revenue, double in size, four years running. Um, Much of that was driven by the culture of performance that started with the CEO and went down to, you know, every single person in the organization down to the newest recent hire because that that culture of performance was what we led with when we interviewed people and recruited them
0: so so obviously the hiring manager and the hiring teams were looking at this in in their interviews and their recruitment but in your startups what are some of the structural things you did around recruitment to make sure you had people that were really committed to winning and to moving the ball forward
1: so it's important i think uh in a in a small team uh in a startup right when you're talking you know less than a dozen people, uh, every hire is so important. Um, so even more important than in a big organization. And so you, you got to put even more of a more primary emphasis on hiring, uh, for culture. Uh, it's also important that people get along cause it's, you're just around each other all the time, right? And, and startups in particular are very in, intensive environments. And so, um, in the startups I've been a part of, Uh, at the beginning, basically everybody's a hire. Everybody's part of the hiring team. Like I think when we made our first 10 hires and a couple of the founding teams I'm part of, everybody gets a chance to participate in the interviews. Um, Even if it's just five minutes, just, just to touch people. And it's also important to, uh, I think, allow the recruit, the potential employee to have a chance to talk to somebody that's not part of the hiring process per se, right? Not the CEO or the hiring manager to have, hey, here's, you know, here's our junior marketing person. Uh, Here's their phone number. You can talk to them. They're not, they make no hiring decision. They're just here as a source of information. So you can ask the questions that you don't feel comfortable asking me to make sure this is a good fit.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Back when I was a permanent executive director, um, I reached a point because I I have a, um, I can be rather intense and I'm aware of that. And so um, I reached a point where, for direct reports, I would say to them, you know, you can look on our website and see everyone is a direct report of me. And just like I'm going to be checking your references, I'd suggest you call some of them and ask them what I'm like to work for. And some people really would would call back and go, oh, I'm not interested in the position anymore. And I'm like, great, this is perfect. We're not yeah. a good fit. I'm glad we know that now.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, there, with folks of a military background, we often are Fast to hire because we see we want to see the best in people, and then slow to fire because we feel like it's a leadership failure if someone doesn't work out, and we want to train and coach and mentor. And, and I do believe in the power of those things, and we have a responsibility as leaders to make sure our our employees have every chance to succeed. But in many cases, the 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 failure to perform is because there isn't a fit between the the culture, the role, the supervisor, you know, the, maybe even the organization itself. And so the key thing is to, is to move people right to to where they can uh, succeed. And it's better to get those things right in the first place. So I think the best hiring practice is actually the opposite. Be very, very slow to hire, take your time, to make sure there's a fit across the board on all those cultural components and then be very fast. I say fire, but I don't really literally mean like terminate someone, but be fast to change people um, the role they have right maybe it's a maybe they need to report to someone else maybe you need to tweak their their set of responsibilities maybe their work environment find a way to get that fit right be fast to change things to get the place the person to place where they can or uh, perform in excel right
0: and and i will admit i uh, with people who are moderate performers, but I realized that they're not the right fit for the team. and They're probably not going to become top performers. I've even had conversations where I've kind of had to say, you know, it does not feel like this is a good fit. Here's why. Um, I think you should be looking. Let's talk about what it is you want to do. And let's talk about a timeline. And, you know, for me, the, you know, while sometimes you do have to fire, you just do. Um, To me, the ideal is to kind of support someone in that transition and hopefully give them a little bit of a a soft landing, not in that you're giving them a payout, but you're giving them the opportunity as long as they continue to do their job and do it well to find another job. Yeah, that's,
1: I I totally agree with you there, Dolph. I think, too many times, employees, employers think there's some kind of adversarial relationship, like either, you know, you work for me or you're you're dead to me, right? You know, I think that a much better approach is, look, I want an employee who's passionate and performing, and you, frankly, right, as an employee, want to be in a place where you're performing and you're passionate. So our interests are actually totally aligned. Now, it may work out that it's not you in this job for me, in which case, let's work together. Let's find you a place where you know, a role, whether it's in this organization or another where you're passionate and feel that you can perform. And I want somebody who is passionate and, and is performing in this role where we should work together to move towards that. Goal.
0: Right. And, and the other thing, and, and I and I just I feel really strongly this way as employees or team members, we have all found ourselves in places where we're not a good fit. And we're typically miserable and you know, and I think to own that with the other person and say and and say hey You know, I once had this job where I was where I was not a good fit and I hated coming to work and it and it just Sucked and I don't want you to experience that and you know, and how I finally changed it was I changed my job
1: Yeah, I think having candid discussions with, with people like that is not just right but also refreshing right because I think too often those are hard conversations or we, we, we make them hard when they actually don't have to be, you know, Hey, what's going on? You know, you, you know, I notice you're not yourself. I noticed that, you know, you, the first opportunity you have to leave, you leave, you know, this isn't, you don't strike me as someone who's passionate about what you're doing. You, you just, just tell me what's going on. Right. You know, I'm not going to be mad or upset. I, I honestly just want to understand because I care.
0: Right. Right. So now let's, tran- let's transition over a little bit to Boodle AI. So you have started this new for-profit company that is marketing to the nonprofit sector. Um, and it's obviously marketing its service to the nonprofit sector. How have you recruited and created a culture that may or may not be different um, because you're really interfacing with nonprofits?
1: So I'm part of the founding team. So I've, I have two other co-founders, uh, Eric Okamoto and Sean Olds. All three of us attended West Point. All three of us uh, served in the military. Uh, all three of us have been part of mission-driven organizations. And all three of us have known it's like to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And we bring that set of, of values and experiences of service uh, with us to Boodle AI. And Boodle itself is actually a, a West Point term. Uh, when you're at West Point everything in your room has a place uh, if you're if you're lucky enough to you have your friends and family sp- send you treats or desserts in the mail then you keep it in a box in up high in your closet and it's called the boodle box and Boodle refers to things that are hard to find um, very scarce but very desirable and so when we built the company we just love that term uh, boodle uh, when as and really I have to give credit to Sh- Sean and Eric I was with um other companies and only recently joined Boodle as a full-time executive. Um, they've done a they've done a, a marvelous job of recruiting people that share our passion for service. Uh, these, you know, the 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 incredibly talented team at Boodle, frankly, could all be doing something else, but they're choosing to build Boodle because they're passionate about what we're trying to build, right? Which is AI assistance to help nonprofits acquire new donors and to fundraise. And the idea of being able to help nonprofits achieve their mission better by having to spend less time um, on on fundraising efforts and to get more out of those efforts they do undertake and currently undertake, that's something we could all get behind. And uh, when we recruit, the number one thing that people say after they see their platform and we talk to them about why, when we ask them like, why do you want to join Boodle? The, The comment we get back is we love the mission. We love the idea of supporting and working with nonprofits and when when people say that we know they're a good fit for us because that's what drives us as well
0: so <clears throat> I got to unpack a couple things because you just said at least three things that I think are really scary for a lot of people in the nonprofit sector not everybody but a lot of people in the sector um, first of all artificial intelligence second of all uh, fundraising and third of all talking to others about donors so let's unpack all of that, but, but maybe we'll save artificial intelligence for the last, for the last, well, actually, sure. I guess we kind of have to hit that first. So, w- so what is the Boodle AI, which of course is artificial intelligence? What is it doing? So
1: we build AI systems that can take the data that a nonprofit already has and build a model of what a likely donor looks like for that particular nonprofit. So we, we basically unlock the power of the nonprofit's own data to build a model that says, hey, this is what your donors look like. Then we can take that model and use it to power an AI assistant that we provide to the nonprofit's fundraisers. And then they can take that assistant and unleash it on their own contacts and social media. And the assistant identifies who in that fundraiser's networks looks like the nonprofit's best donors. And then the, the fundraiser chooses who they reach out to and Boodle's AI assistant then suggests messaging so it basically makes it easier for fundraisers to fundraise, right? The the, the big friction points in fundraising is well, gosh, who am I gonna ask? How am I gonna ask them and how am I gonna find time to do all that because I'm a busy person which are all fair questions and all Friction points we deal with with fundraising and I, I you know, I myself I serve on a multiple nonprofit boards I participated in uh, capital campaigns, uh, seven, eight, nine figures. Uh, I have, uh, I have helped with bringing in major gifts. I've made major gifts. I participated in peer to peer campaigns and raised fix- six figures. So these are all things that I have kind of personally felt the, the, the sweat and the pain and the, and the suffering going through. And so I wanted to build a tool that I would use, right. As a fundraiser. And I, I get asked all the time, Hey, would you raise money for this Organization that organization and I have to scratch my head and think gosh. Well, who who would donate to XYZ nonprofit? But now we've built a tool that answers that question for the fundraiser and then answer the question of well What should I say to them and puts it all in a nice tidy package where you know in the span of 30 minutes? I can reach out to you know 50 to 100 people if I wanted to
0: hmm. so, um I let me also just be clear, I think when you're saying fundraiser, you're meaning both paid and volunteer fundraisers. So
1: correct fundraising, just more for you. Yeah.
0: Yeah, like fundraising committee members, board members, your development staff, et cetera. And even even staff members who are not in development who wanted to could essentially use Boodle AI to to crawl their social media and figure out who they know who might support.
1: Yes. And we've also built the tool to be used by your peer to peer volunteer fundraisers. In a way that one of their concerns is of course privacy, right? Like, sure. I mean, I as a board member, I've been asked by development staff, like, hey, would you just share your contact list with us and we'll search through it and tell you who you know that could provide a major gift? And I'm like, wow, I don't know. As much as I want to support your organization, that feels like a big ask. Well, with Boodle, right, Boodle can examine someone's contact list without ever sharing it back with the nonprofit. And in fact, we keep every fundraiser's data separate and, and compartmentalized. We never sell or share or track user personal data. We protect that those contacts from the nonprofit and we never reach out to a fundraiser contacts unless they they choose to.
0: I have to say that is super cool, especially in this day and age where, um, and let me back up, we batch record the podcast, but what's been in the news a lot lately is the uh, Facebook Age Yourself app that a lot of people are using that is Russian owned. And and how you're giving up a lot of your privacy by doing it. So it's really cool that you all are focusing on privacy. Yes,
1: all all three of the co-founders, myself, Eric, John, we have lived under a code of honor. You know, West Point famously has this honor code to connect with well, not lie, cheat or steal. And so really, I mean, it, it might sound a little quaint, but we really do believe in doing the right thing. And we wanted to build a product that was valuable in itself our, our you know, we're not building a product in order to gather analytics and, and sell that we're not building a product to get people's eyeballs and sell ads. You know, the, the platform is mar- marketed and used by nonprofits and they provide it to their fundraisers. Uh, and that's it. That's, we're not, we're not monetizing people's data, uh, you know, to other people, mm-hmm. which is unlike, I think many platforms. Uh, there's a saying, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And mm-hmm. frankly, people platforms want people's either data or their eyeballs for advertisers and that's how they make the money that is not how boodle makes its money
0: right and and i and i absolutely get that saying it's one of the reasons why in my own consulting practice in my own personal life like i pay for my own email service you know other than the social media that i'm on i pay for every online service i have because i do not want to be the product yeah well yeah. For france we have got to wind down, but I also have to ask you the off the map question. Um, I always know it's a great recorded conversation when I've got to try to squeeze in the off the map question. Um, obviously, you are someone who is passionate about your work. You've worked in in a variety of different fields, and I have a feeling that you probably spend a lot of time at work. So the off the map question for you is: Tell me about your favorite vacation.
1: My favorite vacation. That's a great one. Um, So uh, before I married my wife, uh, we took a a 10-day trip to France together. And uh, actually, we weren't engaged at the time. This is kind of the trip you take with your person you think you might want to spend the rest of your life with. But let's just try to spend 10 days together and see if we can tolerate each other first trip. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people do that. And we ended up going to Paris and then going to Normandy and then going to uh, St. Michel and then Burgundy, and it was such a great trip. Uh, First of all, we're in France, which is always awesome, but second, it was a great mix of things that she was passionate about, things I was passionate about, and things that we were passionate about together, and learning about each other's passions, I think helped us learn about each other, and, and cemented the decision that, yeah, you know, I want to spend the rest of my life with this person.
0: That's really awesome. But, you know, also Paris is one of the most romantic cities in the world. So it's kind of hard not to think in Paris. Yeah, I want to spend the rest of my life with this person. <laughs> so, so you picked a good venue for it.
1: That's right. That's right. Well, maybe maybe I was trying to uh, stack the deck a little bit there.
0: I love it. That That is absolutely awesome. Um, France, I just want to say it has been amazing talking to you today. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your thoughts about organizational culture and recruitment with our listeners. Now, I also want to make sure that folks know how to find Boodle AI, and it's pretty simple. You're just going to go to Boodle.ai. That's Boodle.ai. They can also find you on Twitter. I just followed you on Twitter and it's F Q Wang. That's at FQ Wang, and that's spelled Wang is spelled H-O-A-N-G. Hey, France, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Dolph, it's been great to be here. Um, really appreciate your time.
0: Listeners, if your favorite podcast listening place is in your car, do not try to scribble France's information or Boodle AI's information on that old Styrofoam coffee cup you should have thrown out three years ago. All the contact information can be found at our show notes today at successful nonprofits.com. Now, When you get where you're going, please consider doing me a favor by subscribing to this podcast on whatever listening platform you use. Also consider doing me another favor by rating and reviewing the podcast while you're there. Now, technically, I think I just asked for three favors, but hey, what can I say? I'm asking you for three favors. That's our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.